1: Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor, and you are joining us for a very special Pride episode. We are closing out our Pride coverage with a 100% trans episode, which I didn't realize till we got everyone in the room, and I was like, you, me, me, you, 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 me, me. We're like the Spider-Man meme, you know, like, oh... Trans, 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 trans. So I'm pumped. I am delighted to have a special guest host here with us today, the lovely Izzy Wasserstein. Izzy, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, I could not be more delighted. um, And I am so excited to welcome Charlie Jane Anders, uh, who is immensely talented, a wonderful human being, and I just could not be more delighted. Welcome, Charlie Jane. Hi! Thanks so much
3: for having me. It's such a thrill to be here.
1: I'm just proud I didn't faint when you just spoke because listeners will know that I am a huge Charlie Jane Anders fan. I bring up your books and interviews all the time. I'm like, oh, professional Hollywood person, have you read All the Birds in the Sky? Oh, man. (laughs) Because that book changed me. So I am just... I am on cloud nine. I can't believe you're here. Uh, For listeners, if you don't know Charlie Jane Anders, that'd be, I mean, honestly, almost unfathomable. Charlie is an incredible writer of so many different genres, comics, novels, YA novels, adult novels, science fiction, fantasy. Uh, Do you you play with horror? Do you get into some horror? I've
3: only done a tiny bit of horror, like a little bit here and there, just some short stories.
1: So maybe the future, maybe the future holds more horror. We shall see.
2: Also, nonfiction. Let's not sleep on that. Oh,
1: my God. Yes. Thank you. Please. Oh, my gosh. And um, I forgot the name of the book because I read it when it was coming out in pieces. Your writing book
3: called never, never say so you can't survive. Can survive it's a book for, oh. about how to use creative writing to get through hard times and the final version that came out in book form is a little bit is a lot better actually than the version that was being released in pieces but uh
1: just updating my tbr real quick oh yeah
3: <laughs> yeah i feel like I, I polished it up a lot and added a bunch of trimmed it and also added a bunch of stuff uh but thank you yeah
1: Well, and and dedicated followers, folks who've read Decoded Pride Issue 1, know that we actually wrote our introduction. We quoted the book as it it was sort of still actively coming out. We quoted a piece of that to talk about why does it matter to write speculative fiction in the times that we're in? And we quoted you because... Obviously, Uh you had a lot of beautiful things to say. So I guess I'm still just fan-friending. I'm just like, Charlie, I think you're great. And I also read this. And then I did this thing. And also, like, you're really nice. And I like you. You know, it's Uh. like, what's happening today? So Uh, lots of compliments. And then for listeners, if you remember, if you haven't tuned in, make sure to check out episode 137 featuring Izzy Wasserstein. We talk about Izzy's amazing short story collection. All the hometowns you can't stay away from. Oh, my God. So so good. Such a fun conversation um, about the process of writing. So make sure you go check it out. Izzy, I'm so glad you're back with us.
2: Oh, thank you both.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Charlie, usually we, we start with folks and we're like, oh, let's talk about like how you got started. And I would love to hear about that. But I also know that you have a very long career where you have worked at io9, I was reading about your first article you wrote about trans issues, and I was like, "Dang, I didn't even know Charlie Jane wrote for this this publication as well." So I think it'd be nice to hear a little bit about how you got started, and then we can start jumping into some of the the awesome properties we have to talk about today.
3: Yeah, I mean, I tell there's a story I tell pretty often, and you can find it in my newsletter if you scroll back through the archives about like, you know, how I got started as a writer in general, which is that I had a really severe learning disability uh, and in elementary school and kind of almost flunked out of first, second, and third grade. And I had this amazing special education teacher who really helped me and worked with me, but she also kind of used creativity to reward me when I could get the schoolwork right. So, you know, in exchange for like being able to do the, you know, the schoolwork, the letters and the the basic math and stuff, uh, she got me to write a stage play, which we actually performed, and we made a fake newspaper. It was like a lot of creative projects that kind of kept me engaged because it was a huge grind trying to just learn basic schoolwork. So that was kind of my original origin story. And yeah, I worked in journalism. I worked in mainstream journalism uh, when I was just starting out right out of college. And then I also, uh, when I moved to San Francisco, I got involved in actually a few different kind of alternative publications but probably the best known of them and the f- one that i first got sucked into was anything that moves which is the which was a very sort of at the time it was a hugely important bisexual magazine it was like the magazine for you know i forget what the exact phrase was but it was basically the magazine for like cool bisexuals and it was sold in like every bookstore every Borders, every Barnes and Noble, every Tower Records, every like magazine rack and like, you know, record stores and things all over the country. It was like it had a huge circulation and it was a beautifully produced magazine about bisexuality, but also it touched on, you know, race, gender, sizism and, you know, ableism and just everything. It It was a magazine that took a very broad approach to covering trans, to covering bisexual issues. And so we wrote a lot about trans issues, which was an education for me. And I was just starting to kind of think about transitioning at the time. So for a long time, I was sort of straddling, doing kind of mainstream journalism uh, for my day job and, you know, doing just whatever paid the bills mostly. And then also writing fiction on the side and, uh, you know, doing alternative journalism on the side. And uh, then, you know, I huge lucky... Stroke when Annalie Newitz, my partner, who had collaborated with on a lot of projects previously, got hired to edit io9 and uh, brought me on as as kind of their second in command, and that literally changed my life. And getting to write about science fiction like as a job, like all the time, was just it was amazing. It was such a cool thing, and I learned so much from doing that. That's awesome! Wow! Yes. I, I love what an love origin the story, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, so let's uh maybe maybe that's a nice uh segue that we could talk about. Um speaking of origin stories. Um <laughs> and, and and this is maybe a, a bit of a wind up here, but one of the things I really loved, I have been um reading through the uh the book form version of Never Say You Can't Survive. And one of the things I've struck again with as as I was when I first encountered these uh essays was um how thoughtful and forthright you are about your process and about the, the ways that you have approached these things. And I wonder, sort of, can you talk about the either? Um, you can take this any way you want. Your origin of um, coming to write comics or the ways in which it was either a similar... It's either a similar process for you or a very different process than you use when you're writing a uh, novel or a short story or whatever.
3: Wow. So, so the question is specifically about writing comics. Um, yeah, I mean... I really love throwing myself into areas where I'm kind of starting over and I'm kind of, you know, learning once again and kind of, you know, kind of starting at the bottom again and kind of having to be an apprentice or, you know, having to be on a steep learning curve because I feel like those opportunities are really golden when you're a writer. They keep you fresh and they keep you nimble, I guess, because you have to keep adapting to new circumstances and new challenges. Comics um, comics are very different from writing prose. They're also very different from writing for television. It's just it's a very different kind of approach. And yeah, a lot of the strategies that I had been using for fiction writing really did not work in comics, at least not the same way. Um, because in fiction writing, the structure is much looser. Like the structure is whatever you kind of decide to make it unless you're working in a an area where there's, there's really – strong expectations of exactly what the structure is going to be. Most of the time when I read a novel, it's just like I make the structure fit the story I'm telling. And I also like to have like the weirdest structure I can think of. But with a comic book, especially with a monthly comic book, you have exactly 20 pages of art. And then with the X-Men comics, they give you two pages of text to go with that, which you can do some really weird experiments with the text pages. And I've seen some actually really great with, experiments with those in some of the X-Men books recently. But um you have like a very, like, it's a very strict format. And, you know, even more than like an episode of TV where you've got like, I mean, if you're making a show for streaming, the length of the episode is really variable. But also, you know, you don't have a lot of the other structural things like uh, advertising breaks. But you still, you know, there's some structure with an episode for TV. But with comics, it's really like you have a page of comics and, you have to make that page legible to people and the artist is going to do a lot of that, but the writer really has to think about that too. Otherwise you're going to give the artist something that's going to be impossible for them to draw. So you really have to think about like, how does this page flow? Like every single page has to flow on, on its own and have like be legible and have enough going on that it's not just a boring page, but not be cramped so full that you're just like overloading people. So it's, it's a real challenge and like, trying to kind of tell like a really personal and coherent story in comics is, is really like a whole other thing because you have to like basically be willing to be able to kind of break that story up into a bunch of discrete units and find ways to kind of be entertaining on every single page while also kind of moving that story forward. So it's, it's a whole other thing. It's, it's a really unique challenge. And I could go on and on about it, but it's been, it's been really interesting. And the main thing that remains the same, I think, is that I try to really focus on intentionality and try to stay, like I talk about in Never Say You Can't Survive, I try to just sort of stay connected to what the story I'm writing is about and try to find ways to just keep circling back to that uh, thematically, but also in terms of the, the plot and everything.
1: I was reading. I was rereading your newsletter, Happy Dancing. You wrote about the how difficult it can be to write comics. Yeah, I loved that piece. Something I love about what you do in your newsletter is it's always very. And here's the takeaway, which I like. I like for me that's good. I'm like I'm learning something. Oh, good. So you sort of enumerated like here are the things I took away as like coming from prose to comics, things you need to know about the writing. But there was something at the end, and a lot of it I think is stuff you, you shared just now too, but in more depth. So. Sign up for happy dancing. (laughs) Uh, But I also think that there was something you said toward the end where you were talking about how strange it is to work on a series and how you kind of have to write stories and then the story you started, you have to continue later and you can't actually change what happened before, even if it was what would best serve the story. So you talked about that with both comics and with the Unstoppable series. And so I was curious if you had any more to share about that or any further insights now that you're further into the process.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's basically what I said in the newsletter. It really is that, you know, you have, you make choices and then you kind of have to live with them. And most of the time, I would say, like, pretty much all of the time, it's been fine for me so far. It's just, you know... That's where it's really helpful to know where you're going, at least to some extent, but also to just be nimble and flexible and be able to like adjust on the fly. And uh, what's fun about writing is that you kind of throw a bunch of stuff in the air and then try to catch as much of it as you can. And obviously, it's it's more of a high wire act if you can't go back and change what you threw in the air. You just have to be like, well, I threw all these things in the air and now I'm going to run around ca- and catch them and I don't have the option to like delete one of the things I threw in the air because that's already happened. And uh, with, the, with the miniseries I just wrote, uh, New Mutants, Lethal Legion, I feel like the first issue, uh, which I, is out now as we're recording this and probably like a couple more issues will be out by the time you're hearing this. With the first issue, I feel like I do a decent job of setting up a situation or actually a couple of situations that are just fun to play out. And then there's a little bit of improvisation in terms of how those situations actually do play out and like what happens. And it's like a little bit, you know, chaotic, but I don't know. I feel like that's part of the fun of reading comics and, you know, also reading sequels to books that are already out is that mm. you get to see kind of, you know, the you get to see some improv, I guess.
1: Yeah, how do you play with the tools you created for yourself? Yeah,
3: exactly, exactly.
1: (laughs) That's really neat. Well, you know, we've sort of been dancing around, but let's talk about... Sheila, aka escapade, who is a trans mutant who made her premiere in Marvel Voices Pride number one 2022. So last year in Pride. Yeah. And her power is circumstance switching, which I am obsessed with. Yes. Uh, I cannot handle how cool it is. You created Sheila uh with Rose Steen and Ted Brandt, I believe. Or maybe Ro Stein, sorry, and Ted Brandt. Um, and that is like you talked a little bit about the process of designing. I really was like touched. I was reading the interview on marvel.com when you were like, I hope never, no one, anyone ever sees the sketches I drew.
3: Oh, God, they're (laughs) terrible. (laughs) They're terrible.
1: uh but i would love to hear about the process of creating her briefly and then i want to talk about you know moving her from marvel voices pride into the new mutants run which you picked up with issue 31 and then now she has this huge life and and sort of runway in front of her so i'd love to hear just about where she came from for you why she matters to you and then how what the process of evolving her story has been like
3: yeah so uh sarah brunstad my editor at marvel who's amazing um she, she and I had been talking about me creating a trans superhero for, I don't know, like a few years, like three or four years. I feel like we started having that conversation back in 2018 or 2019, I want to say. And we kind of batted it back and forth. I'd pitched a few different ideas. And then it kind of, there was a period of silence and I was like, oh, you know, maybe that's just didn't work out. And then I did a few other short writing things for Marvel. And then Sarah came back and said, yeah, we want to do it now. And I was like, dang, okay. And I, you know, obviously I thought if I could do something, you know, if I could create a trans superhero who actually becomes like, you know, a known character and just kind of turning up a lot and is popular, I felt like trans people need all the heroes we can get right now. <laughs> it's a really dark and terrible time in a lot of ways. Like I was just looking last night at like the four hundred and twenty-eight state bills uh, that are being mm. you know proposed right now to like restrict trans and other queer people from like yeah. just living our lives and it's it's really dark and terrible and really like there's just so much misinformation and uh and just garbage out there right now and so I've you know I sort of thought if I could create a, a trans superhero who is just like a lovable character who you know, gets into lots of scrapes, and maybe her being trans isn't like the point of her character because that nobody—I don't think a lot of people would want to read that necessarily in a mainstream superhero comic. I mean, I would, but I feel like I—I <laughs> I, I also want characters who just happen to be trans, who are just like, mm-hmm. "I'm a superhero, and by the way, I'm trans," uh, mm-hmm. rather than that being their whole deal. I think that that's actually really valuable, and so you know, and the idea of. I, I kind of wanted Escapade to be what I call kind of a naive trickster. Like she's a, she's, she pulls tricks on people. She's uh, she's a thief. She's a con artist. She goes around stealing from the rich. Um, but she's also really kind of innocent and kind of clueless in a lot of ways. And she makes a lot of really, really terrible decisions. Like, and usually with the best of intentions, but she makes really, really terrible decisions. And that was the thing that was really important to me is that she not be someone who always makes the right choice. And, Her And so I was like, she can have all these cool gadgets. She can have all this cool stuff. And then her superpower was something that I'd had in my back pocket for a really long time. I'd been thinking about that superpower for years. And it was actually kind of low-key part of another project that I had been trying to pitch to Marvel like Mm. five or six years ago. And so I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to use that, now's the time. And I just felt like it had a lot of really fun storytelling possibilities. And indeed, it has been fun to play with so far. and it kind of goes along with the trickster thing because she's someone who turns the tables. She turns the tables on everybody. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. her whole deal is that if you're on top, she can be on top. If if you're like the best, if you won a hot dog eating contest, she can make it so that she won instead. That's <laughs> that's how she puts it in one of the issues of New Mutants. And, it's so cute when she says yeah. that. <laughs> and, you know, but the I want to say, you know, Ted and Roe, Ted Brandt and Roe Stein really like made a huge, like, their design input really made the characters like both Sheila and her best friend, Morgan, mm-hmm. uh, who's a, you know, a trans non-binary Jewish Chinese kid with a pet flying turtle named Hibbert. Um, you know, they, their design inspiration really made those characters what they are like my original, I think my original concept for what Escapade would look like was like kind of roller derby inspired. Cause I have so many mm-hmm. friends who are doing roller derby and, you know, thank God people pointed out, yeah, there's a lot of roller derby inspired superheroes out there right now. That's like a very <laughs> common look. Harley Quinn is kind of doing a roller derby look now. And so mm-hmm. that's not going to stand out. It's not going to be interesting to look at. And it's just going to, people are going to be like, ah, oh, roller derby. And, uh, you know, I feel like it was Sarah Brunstad who was like, let's give her a, a cool jumpsuit. And like, you know, I'm obsessed with these jumpsuits from like Wild Fang. I think it is or Big Bud Press. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we gave her a cool jumpsuit and, like, a cool... And, like, I think it was Ted and Rowe who was like, let's give her a little jacket that's, like, cropped at the midriff or cropped at the, like, Mm -hmm. you know, mid-chest. And, like, it just... That look, the whole look I'm obsessed with, I think it's amazing. And the, like... The, I want the, the outfit. Tips her I'm hair. like,
1: where do I buy this? Like, I, I, I would wear, that. wear this every day. I Not would wear it every day. just
3: cosplay, but I would just wear it as an outfit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then <laughs> it was Ted and Roe who suggested, let's make Morgan. Like, I was like, yeah, the one thing I don't want, like Morgan is kind of the nerdy best friend. The one thing I don't want for Morgan is for them to be just wearing an endless series of like um, nerdy t-shirts and like to be and like that's the Quentin's nerdy th-
1: thing, right? Like that's what Quentin is doing.
3: <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, I'm so sick of like the nerdy psychic who always wears like a nerdy t-shirt. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, Morgan is never allowed to wear a t-shirt ever. Morgan doesn't own a t-shirt.
1: Morgan would never. And so,
3: and so it was, I think it was Ted who was like, what if we made Morgan a fancy boy? And like Ted and Roe are both British and We got really excited talking about, like, (laughs) you know, the sweater vests and the bow ties and the little suits and the, you know, pocket squares and the Argyle socks. And, like, Morgan's socks are just always amazing. Morgan has the best sock game. And so, and then the flying turtle was just like a flying turtle with, like, big, fluffy wings. And it was actually, um, I want to shout out Anisa Okoye, who is uh, Sarah's assistant at Marvel who I'd previously worked with when she was an assistant at Tor, actually, she used to be at Tor Books. Uh, we were like, we spent like, an, an, I don't know how long trying to come up with a name for Escapade. And it's just naming a new superhero is so hard because like every name you come up with has been used somewhere. Like oh, yeah. I'd be like, Oh, so it's how about this name? And it's like, Oh, there's a transformer name to that. Oh, there's, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's super hard. And, Anita was the one who like just pulled out Escapade. And I was like, oh my God, yes, that's it. Yes, perfect, done. And honestly, Anita saved our bacon because I we would probably still be trying to figure out a name if Anita hadn't done that.
1: You know, for some reason that made me think about, you know, talking about her character design, I saw on, I think, either Twitter or Instagram, you shared a picture of Escapade in an upcoming cover for Marvel Pride, which will be out this month when you're listening. So hopefully you grabbed your copy. And... Um, they're they're doing ballroom dancing, and so she, the person who made the covers, did like a, a series, and they're all doing ballroom. Sheila is is doing this ballroom move, and she has this huge, just like radiant joy, just I know. clear on her mm. n- entire essence. And I feel like that matches escapade, right? Like that's escapade. That's that's who she is. Uh, I just love it so much.
3: Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm a terrible person because I do love to take. And, you know, she is a really joyful, upbeat character, but she has some darkness and she has some mm-hmm. some stuff that she, you know, she's she, her parents kind of disowned her when she came out as trans. She's had some stuff happen. And, you know, and she's going to, because of her, partly because of her tendency to make terrible decisions, she's she definitely goes through some hard times. Like she definitely has some sadness and some, you know, some scary stuff that happens because it's the X-Men. You have to have that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, like, maybe I'm reading too far into this, but I feel like, well, I I, I deeply crave stories about queer and trans folks uh, experiencing joy. I think, as you were saying, right, we can all look around the world and see how hostile it is right now uh, to queer and trans folks. And so I wonder if there's something to, like, like, to make that joy feel as joyous as it needs to. Do we need to put characters through hard times just so it feels like, yeah, this is how it goes, right? You can't, it can't always be this way. The world is hard sometimes. Mm. I don't know. is like, I, I feel like that's maybe drawing too broad a conclusion, but I really love the way that your work plays with, um, and it shows experiences of joy while also being like, yeah, but the world can be really awful.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I actually do think it's like, I don't think you have to have horrible darkness and scariness in a story in order to have like light and joy and positivity. I think you can, whatever you can make work, you can do. And there's definitely a lot of cozy fiction out there right now where nothing terrible or scary happens. Like I'm thinking of those Becky Chambers books, but there's also a bunch of others. The Robot and Monk books by Becky Chambers are just like very sweet and positive and, you know, kind. Um, And I, I love that kind of fiction. I always, I always just, want to include some some darkness and scariness. And with 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 Escapade, I mean, I feel like the root of her issue is that, you know, like this is the thing, I don't know if y'all have read the the Pride issue. This is I I really hope more people. If you're anybody listening to this, and you can get a copy of the 2022 Pride issue, which I think might already be out of print, unfortunately, but it is
1: on Marvel Unlimited. It is on Marvel you Unlimited. Can also get it in digital. Yeah, yeah, you
3: can get it on in in digital format. You can also read it on Marvel Unlimited. If you have a Marvel Unlimited subscription, I'd really I would be so grateful if you read read it, that issue because that that issue is really where we deal with a lot of this stuff. And there's not going to be because. New Mutants is a team book. It's got a bunch of characters. There's not really ever going to be time to do that level of, you know, delving into Escapade's relationship with her transness. But there's two things I want to call out in that issue that I was really happy we were able to do. One was the thing where like, uh, Sheila comes out to her parents as a mutant and her parents are like yeah we support you you know being a mutant is you know it's hard but we really think it's awesome and you know your genes came from us so obviously we're the reason you're a mutant and we support you mm. and like they Sheila's parents are super supportive of her being a mutant and then later she goes back and tells her parents that she's trans and her parents are like what the hell you're this is not okay you know you've you're been brainwashed, brainwashed by yeah. the internet you're mm. rapid gendered, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Yes. And it's, I really wanted to have that in there because I, I feel like, A, I didn't want to suggest that being a mutant and being trans are exactly the same thing because they're not. And I didn't want one to be a metaphor for the other. And B, I wanted to show that, yeah, transphobia can sometimes like, like even people who are like good liberal, like like it's 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 infected a lot of people right now. And I wanted mm-hmm. to show that it's, it's actually kind of a huge problem that goes beyond just like there are people who are like, bigoted against everybody or whatever. I, I was wondering if Marvel was going to give me pushback on that because, you know, I feel like a rule of the X-Men books is that anti-mutant bias is like the most important or it's like prevalent. And it's like, it's, it mm. kind of subsumes all over bias. That's the thing I sometimes does of feel from not so much from the, t- the comics, actually more from the movies and TV shows now that I think about mm-hmm. it. And, uh, but nobody gave me any pushback on that. They were like, yeah, that's fine. And the other thing is I want to ha- call out is there is that wonderful moment where, these these are all the flashbacks which we did in the style of like an old kind of school newspaper comic strip. Oh
1: my god, I that was like one of my favorite choices that you made. It's I was
3: so happy we were able to do that. It's such a
1: breath of fresh air. Well, it's it's like it's like what you're saying, right? What both you and Izzy were just saying of like there's some heavy stuff to deal with especially in 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 the the voices. Uh Pride number 1 2022 is is you know, we wanted we need to know this context. This is how we understand Sheila from here on out, you know, is like This is her entree. And so we need to go through some like, okay, but we pair that with like this loving, gentle peanuts. It just is so evocative of like everything we grew up with in newspapers and it makes it just feel like a hug. I love it.
3: Yeah, I love it too. And like what I was going to say is, yeah, so we have that one newspaper strip where Morgan is helping Sheila to do her makeup for the first time and Ugh. telling her that she looks pretty and there's just this thing of like gender euphoria like over over Sheila it's like this little rainbow banner that like and I just I was so happy with that I just thought that was like so perfect and like that is what Sheila and Morgan do for each other and um that that moment made me so happy
1: me too <laughs> I was, you know, I actually, what I felt so much reading that piece, and so I'm glad you said, you know, okay, in New Mutants, you can't do this, right? It's a team ensemble, all the things you said. I I was so moved because you used the language that trans people use together. So you used words like gender euphoria yeah you know? and there's another point where she uses a term that I was like I've I outside of indie which I fucking love indie comics I haven't seen this in a mainstream comic I haven't seen someone use these words this way and it felt so real to me and it, oh, I just, I'm wondering I loved what term her immediately I, I'm gonna look I'm gonna look
3: <laughs> I can't remember dang yeah it was
1: gender euphoria definitely did it for me and then oh it was gosh. like something in one of her thoughts it was just it was like wow this is this is really coming from a, a person who gets it. You know what I mean? Like, you get it, right? Because you're trans. And so it feels so good to read about Escapade. That's that's what I'll say in the short short oh, version. In the background, I'm going to go search and see if I can find it. <laughs> yeah, and
3: there, there is a bit in, like, I think it's issue two of Lethal Legion where Sheila's kind of, Sheila says this whole thing about, like, you know, I was kind of thrown away. Like, they told me I would never amount to anything. They told me I would never be worth anything mm. and she's definitely talking there about how she was treated for being trans by her parents but also by others and you know because she's saying those words to a supervillain and she's trying to gain the supervillain's trust it Goes to a weird place after that. But, uh, (laughs) you know, and she's, but she's, she has this wound that hasn't really had a chance to heal. And it's, it isn't kind of there all the time. And it's kind of underneath the surface of this like light and joyfulness and everything. And, and then she goes through some really intense, scary stuff in New Mutants 31 through 33, which she also doesn't really get the chance to heal from until she realizes at some point, oh, yeah, that really messed me up. Okay, dang. Mm. Which I, I find super relatable. Like, that you sometimes just don't realize how so much something messed you up until later.
1: I went back through and I scanned and I was like, what was it? And you know what I think it was? I think it was the very casual way that when Sheila's even just thinking her thoughts, she uses the words queer and trans. Oh, and, yeah. And I, I use those words all the time in my life. And I think sometimes if you aren't around a lot of queer and trans people, you might think it's like, oh, okay, this character's kind of, you know, preaching at me. And so I think it ends up people kind of use they hide they bury things is what I'll say and I think there's total value in that too but I kind of love just boldly having a character who's like we're trans mutant besties queer chosen family you know gender euphoria I'm like these are words we use in in my real life my everyday life so it felt so real that way to me
2: yeah absolutely
1: you know, I was going to say one of the things I love about her, too, and, and people, the listeners will be like, oh, they're back on one, um, is like, you know, there's so much pressure to make perfect representation, right? Especially when you're doing a first of some kind, right? And so I think it's really exciting to have this, this trans superhero, this trans mutant also be a thief to have her origin story be her and her bestie going, I want to be a supervillain, but like one that's really nice to people. You know, they don't (laughs) first identify with the superhero, with the people who have power. And I think that translates into how Sheila looks at Krakoa. She has this suspicion. She's very anti-authoritarian. I wonder why, you know? And like, she questions what everyone's telling her. And all those pieces make her feel so rich and lived in And like, you know, in a world where I also have superpowers, because if there are superpowers, I'm getting them. Um, I feel like I could run into Sheila and be like, let's be buds, you know? Like, it's very real that way.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I love to think of her being a thief. I actually really, like, I don't know, her anti-authoritarian streak appeals to me a lot, and I kind of identify with it. And um, I feel like it's also, like, I don't know, right now, I've been loving all the stories that have been told about the X-Men going, all the mutants going to live on this island called Krakoa mm-hmm. and kind of having their own island nation. But I also do feel like, you know, I have questions and it's, it's interesting to kind of raise those questions and it's a way to set these characters apart a little bit. And, you know, I mean, Sheila gives this whole speech in issue one of New Mutants Lethal Legion, the miniseries that just started where she's like, Forget mutants versus humans, forget all these other fights. It's really the real fight is is all of is everybody against like the super rich. And like she has this whole speech about like how, you know, most of us just want to get by and live our lives, but uh there's just this population of like, you know, billionaires and oligarchs who just want to take everything for themselves and we have to resist them. And like I feel like on the one hand this leads to Sheila making some not great choices, on the other hand I think that she's completely right about that. Like, I think she's speaking the truth in that moment, which is that, you know, we do have like a, we do have to fight, you know, we do have to to struggle against like this kind of uh, plutocracy that we're getting.
2: Can I ask, did you get, uh, did you get any pushback about that choice? Because that feels like a, a position that some people like really don't even like to see articulated.
3: You know, again, I've I mean, I've been so happy in general with like Marvel has been very kind of chill about like, you know, as long as characters aren't like smoking cigars or whatever, you know, all over the place, which is a thing that is, is, you know, is considered kind of not a great thing to show um, as long as it's not something like that. Um, Marvel has been very kind of chill about letting me do, you know, whatever makes sense. And, uh, you know, I think that in the context it's clear that that's coming out of character, that that's like what Sheila believes. And, you know, I think that if you can have, you can have a character represent what they believe in and it's, you know, I think that nobody's going to say that you're not allowed to do that. Um, and of course there's also the fact that it then leads to making terrible decisions. So it's not like, this comic is not saying, you know, this this philosophy is going to lead you to only good things, kind of, because no philosophy will do that. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: It doesn't really have the same sort of moral superiority that you might hear from Magneto, for instance. So it, I think it, it works that way and that she gets to make mistakes. I don't know. I just really like it when characters I love do something really terrible or or not well thought out mm-hmm. or impulsive. Because I do all of that all the time. And I'm like, damn it. If I had thought for 12 more seconds, I would have made a better decision. But yes. I didn't because I'm yep. busy being alive, you know?
3: Highly relatable. Extremely relatable. Yeah.
2: I'm on record as being very firmly... Uh, pro-disaster queer and when those disaster (laughs) queers are also doing lots of amazing things like that's really a sweet spot for me characters that can be highly competent and um and wonderful but also and I understand where that fear comes from and but like I so resent the sense that like we have to have portrayals of trans folks in particular Mm -hmm. be be great because we're under such attack and it's like no what for me one of the things that like victory for the trans community looks like is allowing us to be as messy as everyone else gets to be
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, so i love the
2: way you're i love the way you're exploring that in your work charlie jane
3: well thank you and yeah i agree like a billion percent of course god
1: hello there listeners did you know that we work on so many projects like Like so many, we work on so many projects. And did you know we have bonus content behind all of those projects? Uh, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. And if you didn't, you didn't know then that you can have access to all of those bonus projects by joining us at patreon.com slash queerspec. Join us for as little as $2 a month to get full access to all 126 at the time of recording this promo, back episodes, and more to come. You can join us at patreon.com slash queerspec.
0: Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R A K U T E N.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: It feels like the perfect segue to talk about the Unstoppable series, which is your YA sci-fi series that is just fucking mind-blowingly good. I mean, you know that, right? Like, you you must know. It's so fucking good. Uh, and it's good because it's well-written. And it's good because the characters feel like real teenagers who just keep hurting each other by accident. Oh, it's so fucking cute. And it also is really transgressive in some ways in, in science fiction that I think is part of what makes it so fucking exciting. Yay. So, you know, I have like a bajillion questions. But I think I, I recently saw... When uh, some promotion maybe that was coming up, or some some news about the third installment, which is came out in April, which is before the time of recording, listeners. But if for you, it's out there. Go get it. And I I was really moved because they were talking about the the way that you use pronouns in your books, and I have a, med, a bajillion thoughts on it. But I would love to hear for you when you think about the way you've chosen to have characters present their pronouns as they're meeting people. What was the like practical reason for that? And what do you think is the sort of bigger picture of that for you?
3: I forget how that came about. I think it was just a thing that I decided to do, which I got really excited about at some point. And it was basically like, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of interrogating in these books is this notion of the universal translator, which is a, you know, in Star Trek they have a universal translator mm. which is never explained. And it's just like, oh yeah, we can understand all languages except for occasionally, like if we meet like a creature that communicates in such a different way that we can't understand it. But 99% of the time, any alien we meet Dharma communicate Tanagra.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. but even
3: there, they can understand the they language. They get there, they yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They yeah, can yeah, understand
3: yeah. the words. They just don't know what gotcha. the words mean. yes, yes, and yes, like, Which actually, that episode is really interesting. And we could we could talk about that for a while, but. Um, we'll have but to yeah, have you back so, and do a
1: whole episode. <laughs> and
3: like, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has the babble Fish. Doctor Who. Like, there's some very nebulously explained way that they understand all languages Mm -hmm. and like, it's just a thing because otherwise you would, we wouldn't be able to travel around the galaxy having adventures and just meeting random aliens. You'd be spending like a hundred episodes, just learning one alien's language. (laughs) So yeah. So I'm really interested in that idea and especially in the, this is kind of orthogonal, but especially in the third book of the trilogy, I really get into the question of like, can you really ever understand, um, someone else's language that easily? Like, could it really be that straightforward? Mm. You know, how do, you know, this translator does not always do great at translating, you know, French into English. So how is it going to really translate alien languages into English? Like, Mm. is that really a thing? Are we really understanding what the aliens are saying? Or are we just getting kind of a rough, a rough translation? And in some cases we're really not understanding at all, maybe. Um, So that's the thing that I kind of delve into in the third book, which I think is really interesting and kind of, gets into a lot of kind of thorny areas around, I don't know, how colonialism is at the bottom of a lot of these stories. But Mm. that's a whole other kettle of whatever, worms. Um, But yeah, I just sort of had this idea that, well, if you have a universal translator that's making sure you understand people's languages, it would also make sure that you know people's pronouns and that you know what people's pronouns are. And, you know, in the first book, whenever Tina meets someone, they introduce themselves, they're like, my name is So-and-so and and my pronouns are blah. And, you know, that's just a thing that always happens and it's kind of normalized. And there's like parts where it gets really funny where it's like, my name is Commander Skog, and my pronouns are she, her, and you're going to die. And like, it's just like, they're just like, you know, prepare to die. These are my pronouns. (laughs) And like, I just, I really get a kick out of that. And then I I get sillier and sillier. In the second book, there's a character who becomes a pretty major character whose pronouns are fire, fire. Wingdon, um, Wingdon, fire breathing oh, beetle. Yeah, and maybe and,
1: my fa- maybe my second favorite character. I think Yato uh, is my favorite character, uh, but I think uh, I think Wingdunk is my second favorite character. Every time Fire does something, I'm just like, shut up. And then every time I, because I do editing as well, every time I see their pronouns in the book, I'm like, the world is getting better. You know, just so yeah. emotional because you know, there's been, I mean, right. We think about how often the the singular they has been edited out of people's books through the process of publishing. And it just feels like this, this harbinger of good is what I'll say.
3: Yeah. And I, I was so, I couldn't believe I was able to just do that. Like have a character whose pronouns are fire, fire. And oh. then actually fire gets, uh, to be a POV character in the third book and oh. you get a lot more fire perspective on stuff. And, uh, You know, that was challenging, but also so much fun. And again, my amazing editor, uh, Miriam Weinberg at Tor Teen and Tor in general, uh, she just went with it. She was like, oh, okay, great. This is is awesome. And like, I was like kind of bracing myself. She told, no, you can't have the fire-breathing beetle have a POV in the third book of your YA trilogy. Like, (laughs) um, but no, we can. It's awesome. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. it doesn't always work the same way it works for Tita, for everybody. Like Tita here's it is like, my name is so-and-so, my pronouns are such-and-such. Um, other people just sort of get, like, a mental update of, like, what people's pronouns are. And, like, I'm pretty careful to explain that in the first book so people don't get thrown. Um, it really is just, like, the translator finds some way to let you know people's correct pronouns. And it probably depends on what language you speak and how pronouns are used in your language mm-hmm. and also just, like, your own kind of mental map.
1: Well, and I think that's one of the things you point out in book two is I believe it's Elsa is is trying to ju- had just met Wing Dunk and is and doesn't know what's going on with Fire and so she's like wait oh. Maybe pronouns don't mean the same thing to mm-hmm. all people. Maybe a pronoun isn't just about explaining gender. And it yeah. could be about place and time and relationship and all these pieces. Yes. And I was just so moved by that. Because it, br- it feels so true to it. When I'm like, hey, I use they, them. I'm not just saying I'm non-binary, right? Like that is a piece of what I'm saying. I For me, it is also a political stance of like, I am a fundamentally unknowable being, to myself and to you. And so we have to come at, at me, in my opinion, with questions, not with assumptions, not with, mm-hmm. okay, you're going to fit in this category or that category and that's it. But with, I, I don't even fucking know. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I really also related it with Kez because I was like, Whoo, I am definitely gender fluid, you know? So yeah. it's like, it's a surprise to me when I wake up some mornings how I feel. So I, I just uh. thought that opened up that understanding through presenting us aliens, but also presenting us ourselves. And I I thought that was really beautiful.
3: Yeah, thank you. And like, it really did make me super happy uh, to like, and to have Kez be able to be gender fluid and just have people use the correct pronoun, whichever that was that day. And like the thing that we actually kind of spell out in the second book that like, yeah, if you, even if you intentionally use the wrong pronoun for someone, the translator will just fix it before anybody else hears it because that's clearly a misunderstanding and we don't want that. So we're just going to fix that. And I was just like, yes. So like there's no misgendering in this universe. It's just yes. there's there's terrible, terrible things that happen, but misgendering is not one of them.
2: Well, I feel like um, one of the reasons that brings me a lot of joy in addition to like shutting down intentional misgendering is that one of the things that like I discovered over um, lockdown was that when I hadn't seen uh, friends of mine, queer friends of mine in a long time, right? Like I would uh, sometimes uh, find them again and realize that like the pronouns that I knew for them were not the ones they were still using. Oh,
1: that
2: um, real. And like just oh, ha- wow. having like um, having that experience of like, right. The like, things have shifted and like having a space where we could identify that really quickly in a way that supports everyone is just like such a lovely idea.
3: Yeah, it was. I had so much fun with that. And like, I, I probably had too much fun with that. And like, I'm going to get in trouble. But I I really, yeah, <laughs> I was super happy to be able to play around with that.
1: Well, and, and, and you know, and I think it's, it's one of those things that I think the best fiction does where it's like, this is a mechanical thing. It's really, it's just a mechanical thing. And then it's like, ha ha, it's also the philosophy, you know, of the whole book series. Ha ha, gotcha, you know? And like that feels so wonderful because it's like every turning page is more expansive. There's more that I'm understanding about what it means to be alive, to be a a person, right? And that's a huge, I mean, that's right. Is that not the bulk of what the book is, the book series is about is who gets to be a person,
3: it's a huge, huge, huge part of it. Yeah, that's that's the thing I'm obsessed with, especially now, because that is a contested issue of like who gets to be fully human and who gets to be have full, you know, agency and personhood and all that other stuff. And like there are people out there who really want to draw a really restrictive definition mm-hmm. of, you know, who's a full person. And it's it's really upsetting.
1: Well, And again, thinking about the second book and and for listeners, uh, book one is called Victory is Greater Than Death. Book two is called Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. And book three is Promises Stronger Than Darkness. What fucking titles. And then I was like, you're so so brilliant. You're also the person who's like, but I'll give the series a short title. I'm like, God damn it. That's so smart. It's so smart. So mad. Um, (laughs) So I'll be locking that away. But the question of personhood is also a question is, is this question in book two for Tina of, okay, I, I'm, you know, I'm this alien clone and I'm supposed to become her and she's a fighter and I never want to fight again. Mm-hmm. And she has to hold that through a lot of pressure to quote unquote, save the universe. And that is, I think, one of the most emotional arcs for me, especially because it's told... Because book two, you know, book one is in Tina's POV. Book two is in Rachel and Elsa's POV. And book three, I'm just learning. We've got Wingdonk. And and who else is a book three POV? Can you tell us?
3: I actually, gosh, you know, now that I think about it, the POVs in book three are a huge spoiler. Okay, then <laughs> like, never mind.
1: There's a, never it's born.
3: actually like a huge <laughs> spoiler. Like if I told you who has a POV in book three, you'd be like, but.
1: But, but, okay, good. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you didn't. Okay. I'm so excited to um, read it. But
3: yeah, no, there's, there's, I, I kind of get, I get wacky with POVs in book three. I'm like, oh, I love it. In book three, that resolve of Tina's to like, you know, basically become kind of a pacifist. That was the thing, just backing up slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the thing that really surprised me in the first book. And that was really, I think that was the moment that this, whole trilogy really kind of crystallized for me. There's that moment about halfway through the first book where Tita and Yato and I think Domini and Kez are trapped in a, uh, in a thousand year old spaceship space station, thousand year old space station being attacked by the bad guys. Mm. And Yato is injured. And basically the only way to get out of that situation is for Tita to take Yato's gun and get, you know, and, and shoot their way out. And so Tina does that, kills like two or three people, Mm. bad guys, quote unquote, in the process. And, you know, and I wrote that and I was like, yeah, okay, this is, you know, Tina's stepping up and, you know, being more heroic. And then after I wrote that sequence, I was like, yeah, this is going to feel like shit because Tina, you know, has never taken a life before and Mm. she's not prepared for how intense that is. And I kind of ended up, Like, it just hit me that this would be something that would make her really, like, have a meltdown, and she does, and she basically, after struggling with it for a long time, like, she basically just, like, breaks down crying in front of her friends, and it's this huge moment of, like, her showing vulnerability to people that she didn't show vulnerability to before. Just, Mm -hmm. it's something that she really is struggling with and she struggles with it for a long time and finally decides, you know what? I'm not going to kill again. And like, there's a part later on where they give her a giant gun and she's carrying it around. And it's literally like this huge weight she's carrying. Mm. And she's just is like, this gun is only like, I'm going to use this gun to kill a bunch of people and I can't handle it. And finally her friends help her to figure out another use for that gun, which, you know, and there's like a funny part where she is just like ranting about how much she hates Chekhov's gun.
1: (laughs) Because it's so her, funny.
3: <laughs> her high school English teacher explained it to her basically in a, the most kind of like literal po- matter possible, which is literally if there's a gun that you see at the beginning, it has to be fired. And she was like, why do guns have to be fired? Why can't guns just be left alone? And like, you know, obviously Chekhov's gun is more than that, but that's what she takes away from it in that moment. And she's carrying around this huge gun and she's like, I really don't want to have to shoot people. And um, yeah, and it gets really intense. And in, in, in In the third book, this becomes – because in the third book, the characters really have their backs against the wall. Things are just getting really, like, impossible, and there's, like, impossible choices that everybody's having to make. And this question of, like, do we use violence to survive, to to save everybody, becomes – it kind of becomes a bigger deal. And it's something where, you know, more than in the first two books, I really try to show both sides of the argument because I don't think it's a simple – Mm. You know, I don't think it's as simple as just being like violence is always wrong. Like, especially I was very conscious that the bad guys in my book are fascists. And, Mm -hmm. you know, do we use violence against fascists? Can we afford to not use violence against fascists? I personally would probably, you know, I just don't think I could do it for like emotional reasons, but maybe in the right situation that would change. I don't know. So everybody's struggling with it, and somebody in the third book has this speech that I really love, which I was really proud of, where they say, look, if you have to kill someone, if you have to take a life, and there's no other choice, um, you have to grieve for them. You have to hold a funeral in your mind. Um, Mm. You might be glad they're dead. You might not regret killing them. You might be like, killing them was the right thing to do. You still have to grieve for them. As much as you have to grieve for your friends who died, you also have to grieve for the enemies that you killed. Mm. Uh, because you took a life and you have to, you know, and I feel like that is kind of a thing that I, you know, I don't I don't know if I'm 100% like always, like if I was in Ukraine right now, would I be like fighting is wrong? I think I'd probably think that you have to fight. But mm. um, I do think that if you have to take a life, that, that's the closest thing to what I definitely believe that I want to put out there is that if you have to take a life, you actually should hold a funeral in your mind for the people you killed.
2: Well, and I've been, I've been, as I've listening, I've been trying to think of a way to form this into a question, and I haven't got it. So I'm just gonna, just gonna say that, uh, Shaw Jane. One of the things like I so deeply admire about your work is that you seem to be to have a unerring ability to craft the story in such a way that characters come up against things that challenge the things that they feel are their most deeply held beliefs. And put pressure on them to see, like, what would you do in the cost of saying I'm not going to I'm not going to use violence anymore, like really comes up against it. And I just that that use of community, that use of other characters to do it is just something I so deeply admire about your work.
3: Thank you. I really appreciate that. And like, yeah, I don't I really don't want to ever make things simple or like be like this is, you know, I'm going to tell you the right like I'm not going to like i don't know robert a heinlein or whatever i'm I'm gonna tell you how it is kids you know this is this is what it is and this you know i i I feel like it's always more interesting to just kind of force people to grapple with questions rather than give them like the easy answer and then maybe you know if you if the characters kind of struggle enough with something they can come up with the answer that makes sense to them at least to some Mm -hmm. extent like i i think that it's, it's a cop-out to give an easy answer and be like, this is how it works. But it's also a cop-out to be like, there's no answers. Nobody ever has an answer for anything. And it's like, no, people do actually, they don't necessarily find the answer, but they find the answer that makes sense for them in this situation. And like I think that it's actually good to show that sometimes. Um, and then, you know, this is a minor spoiler, but in book three, there's a scenario where basically uh, some of my characters are really up against it and they're in imminent danger of death and things are things are really bad and there's a moment where Wang Yiwei who's like the uh who's this really sensitive musician character who's come from China who's a, a musician and roboticist, who has kind of been a captain in training and has been kind of learning to be a captain uh Wang Yiwei is like we have to we have to kill these people there's no other choice we have to kill we have to basically Kill a bunch of people in order to get out of this, and Rachel, who is kind of, who's Wang Yiwei's girlfriend, but who is also kind of in a leadership role at this point, he's like, "You have, you have to like, are you okay with that or not? Like, we, I can't think of another option. But if, if you like, you have to like say yes or no to this." And Rachel really struggles with it. And in the end, she's like, "Yeah, I think you're right. There's no other way out of this situation we're in, other than to kill a bunch of people, and that's we're just gonna have to live with that because." there's so much at stake and we'll die if we don't do this and so they actually and it's it's i've thought about that situation a lot since i wrote it and i still can't think of another way they could have gotten out of that situation other than to to fight and kill people and so i don't want to be just like yeah you know there's always another way because i think that that's that's glib and it's it's easy and sometimes there isn't another way and you you could legitimately be like well it's fight or die, so I'm just going to die. But you have to—that's you have to be know that that's the choice you're making, kind of. So mm. I, I don't want to make it easy, and I really—I feel like the first two books I kind of let the characters off the hook a little bit in terms of like, mm. you know, not putting them in any situations where it was kill or be killed. And in the third book, I was just like, nope, there's going to be some situations like that, and we're going to struggle with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. I know we're getting close to time. So Izzy, do you have any other questions?
2: I mean, I have an infinite number of questions,
1: but, <laughs> but, uh,
2: but I, I, I think that we have, uh, I, I think this has gone in directions that are super wonderful and illuminating. So I don't think I have anything that's like urgent or I will feel this conversation was incomplete without asking.
1: Wonderful. Uh, Izzy, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for yeah. having so many great no. questions. You fucking rule.
2: Thank you. You you both are just such wonderful humans. And
1: Yay. You
2: just, yeah, this has just been so awesome. Time.
1: Yeah. And 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 Charlie Jane, I, I said it off mic, but I'll say it on mic because I really hope folks will go read some of your adult fiction as well. Uh, All the Birds in the Sky is the first book of yours I, I read. And it it really made me feel like there was a place for me in science fiction and fantasy. I'm oh I'm getting emotional. As a trans person, as a person who who believes that violence is a part of life. And, and they're seeing violence at a level that is, it actually really resonates for me. What you were just saying was unstoppable now that I think about all the birds in the sky. And I just, I, I'm grateful for everything you've put out there. There's there's so much, like you said, we need more trans heroes. We need as many as we can get. It's a really tough time yes, uh, to be here and to, to be facing hundreds and hundreds of bills that want to take away the rights of all of us uh, in different uh. ways. And... I have found so much solace in in Escapade. I found so much solace in Unstoppable, those fucking kids. Oh, god damn, I love them so much. And so I just, I want to thank you, A, for coming on the pod, rule, and, and B, like, for spending pride with us, and, and C, for just being out there writing your stories. The world needs them. I need them. So thank yes, you. Yes,
2: absolutely. I want to co-sign every word of that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, 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 Thank you so Co-sign much. Co sign and cry. Me.
3: Y'all, you are both amazing and I'm just so excited to get to hang out with you. And just thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute delight and just a wonderful, you know, conversation. And uh, yeah, happy pride.
1: Happy Pride. And at, Happy uh, Pride. Izzy will tell you, uh, you're in now. You're one of the bitches. You can try to leave, but we will Yay. find you. We'll bring you back. It will be nice. a good time. Um, Izzy, if folks want to find you on social media or online, where can they find you?
2: They can find me at izzywasserstein.com, which is hard to spell. So probably you're better at Twitter at I-Z-Z-Y-X-E-N or at uh, on Mastodon at I-Z-Z-Y-X-E-N at wandering.shop.
1: All right. Fantastic. And then Charlie Jane, if folks want to learn more about you, sign up for your newsletter, find you on social. Where can they do that?
3: Yeah. uh, On Tumblr, on Instagram, on TikTok, I'm at Charlie Jane Anders. Um, On Twitter, I'm at Charlie Jane. And uh, I'm also at Charlie Jane at wandering.shop on Mastodon. And uh yeah, my newsletter is called Happy Dancing. It's button email slash Charlie Jane. And I have a website at charleyjane.com.
1: All right. I love to hear it. All right, listeners, if you did not have a pen out, please don't stress. You can just hit the three dots next to the title of this episode, and that'll expand the show notes, and there'll be links to everything both Izzy and Charlie Jane just shared. I just want to say one more thank you to Kate. You rule. Happy Pride to Sarah and Moniker, our regular hosts who can't be here today. Happy Pride to our listeners. Happy Pride to our patrons. We could be here without you, but it would be weird and hard, so thank you for joining us. Charlie Jane, Izzy, you just made my day. So thank you Yay. both one more time. Yay!
3: Thank you. Thank you so much, Essie. Woo! Thanks,
2: Charlie Thank you, Jane. Essie.
3: Thank you both. You're wonderful. Thanks. Bye.
0: You're listening to Bitches on
1: Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world.
0: Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, spotify or at realm.fm
1: thank you for listening to bitches on comics we are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture as you might have guessed you can follow us on twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics on comics and on instagram at at on comics our website is Brace yourself. Bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however. So good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the
3: podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: You can also support the
1: podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at seflenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore fleenor. I'm Monica Strayanegra, and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com. Or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge.
3: Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfire music.com. Our music is recorded by
1: Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
0: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine,
1: erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we Are not its favoured children. The heresies of Radolf Bantwine. Coming january second, wherever podcasts are available.